where we live, we're, we're high enough uh, above sea level that we don't need flood insurance, but we have it anyway, you know, because in a catastrophic storm, you don't know what might happen and you want to be prepared if you can, you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, do you guys have emergency kits like we do? For, we have oh, emergency oh, kits yeah. for earthquakes, so I figure you guys have to have emergency kits oh, for... Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're we're my wife and I are pretty well prepared for that. And uh, we last time we had a hurricane, we stayed. We didn't evacuate. We hunkered down, and it was wild, you know. But we we were fine, and our neighborhood was fine. A lot of tree limbs, a lot of leaves, but everything else was, you know, it was it was just a life experience. That was for sure. That's it's always scary. Yep. <laughs> um, this is a corny question. I mean, you're a writer, so but so you have to be a reader. Have you read any good books? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Um, yes, I have read a couple of, of, of very interesting books. Um, the but how much I read is a lot, probably less than you would think. Only because um, I, I find that when I'm writing, my my mind is in what I'm writing. You know, the characters are talking to me. They wake me up in the middle of the night. I'm, you know, I'm literally writing down what they're saying at three in the morning. And I, I find it unsatisfying to be reading somebody else's fiction. Um, even uh, sometimes even watching fiction on TV, because not only did I write so much TV in my, that part of my life, but, um, it's, it's like I see the story points coming. I, I feel like I've seen it before. So even the best of the shows, I just like, okay, I see this. And I turned to my wife and said, well, you know, you know, she did it in, in, in the first five minutes. And in and, and 99% of the time, I'm right. Because you can just kind of, you learn to kind of see the plot uh, elements being put in motion. And so I don't find that as satisfying. So, you know, for TV, we tend to watch a lot of home improvement shows and sitcoms and 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 uh, lighthearted movies because it's very different than what I write. And um, but there's a, a, a writer, a new writer named Mary Vaughn Fent, who has just published her second novel, and uh, she's a, a con, con, kind of a contemporary historic fiction writer. And Lisa Davida is another one. Uh, she's she, she published her first novel a couple of years ago, and now she's doing a trilogy of novels. About Queen Margaret and uh, of England, and very interesting uh, writer and excellent, excellent writer. And there's a couple others that I, I look at when I have time. Richard Viteri is a, a writer I've met and I know, and Dennis Palumbo is a mystery writer in Los Angeles and a, a clinical therapist. Very interesting, uh, very interesting guy. Um, but like I said, I. I I, I only have so much brain space. Uh, I, I have always found that, and when I'm writing, it's all-consuming for me. And I'm writing most of the time, so yeah, I work seven days a week uh, on my novels. And when I get in the zone, you know, I, I I hate leaving the zone until I'm finished. And that means, what am I going to do? Take and, and also, I hate reading, you know, one chapter at a time, two chapters at a time, like before bed type of thing. I, I can't do that. When I sit down to read, I want to read the whole thing. So that means I will dedicate a weekend or several, you know, several days to just reading a book. Well, that's satisfying, except 
I feel guilty that it's at the expense of the thing that I'm writing and my characters who are still chirping in my ear uh, uh, and they want, you know, they want the way your attention. Is they talk and you type, you know, <laughs> and they're talking and they're alive and well and, and, and they have things to say. And when you get in the zone, your job is not to write, but it's to transcribe what they tell you because mm -hmm. they are very real and they're very active. And in the middle uh, middle of the night, they they, uh, they they wake me up and I'm standing in the kitchen with a legal pad writing as fast as I can, like this, I'm downloading something from somewhere, you know, and it's, it's all them talking. And then I wake up in the morning and go, what the heck was this? <laughs> you know, but more times than not, it makes eminent sense and, and it fits somewhere in, in the book. And um, it's a very strange process, but that's my process, and it may, may be very different for other people. Uh, it's, I, have, different, I have the same thing um, about the characters talking to me. The first time that happened, I was a little worried that I was going out of my mind. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, it's an, ex it's an eccentricity. Um, in fact, the, the new novel that I'm finishing up is about screenwriters. It's a kind of a... Uh, a dark comedy about Hollywood and kind of how nuts we all are and and um, eccentric maybe is a kinder word and uh, but it's there's, there's a lot of that kind of discussion in it between these writers because um, whether you're a great actor or a musician or whatever these things do occupy your mind in a way that's different than someone who doesn't do that uh, either for a living or as a as a as a hobby, and I, I may have told the story on your show once before, but I heard an interview with Paul McCartney once, and they said, well, you know, John, I think John Lennon had just been killed, and and they said, but you know, what is your obituary going to say? So I can tell you exactly what it's going to say: Paul McCartney, former Beatle, former member of Wings, uh, and composer of Yesterday, died today, and they said, really, why that? He said, well, the irony is. He said, it's the best thing I'll ever write, and I didn't write it. He said, I dreamt it. And he said, I have a notepad next to my bed, and I woke up one morning, and there was yesterday written out. He said, I have no recollection of doing it. I was sound asleep, and it's the greatest thing I'll ever do, and I, I, I can't actually tell you that I wrote it. I have no conscious memory of, of writing it. And... Um, and he said, you know, I've got songs that I've worked, labored at for weeks that are horrible and I wouldn't play them for anybody, but the greatest thing I'll ever do came to me in a dream. Hmm. And, uh, and there's, there's physiological reasons for that. Uh, uh, I went to a, actually a, a lecture on that, uh, the physiology of creativity, believe it or not. And, and it, the, all the, all of your creativity happens in the back of your, your, your head in the reptilian brain. All, anything involuntary, your eyes blinking, your heart beating, all that is controlled in the back. And the intellectual part of your brain is in the front. So for your creativity to get utilized, it has to travel from the back to the front. And things get in the way along the pathway. Um, and so those are writer's block kind of things. And that's why you have all these great ideas in the shower or in the middle of the night, you wake up and you have these epiphanies about things because when your mind is at rest, it clears that pathway and that stuff can come forward. And uh, so you are most creative when your mind is resting. So 
I had a writing teacher once who said, if you're struggling with something in a, in a script or a book, just go to bed. And you, you'll sleep, but your mind will continue to work. Your subconscious mind will continue to wrestle through the problem. And more times than not, you'll wake up with the answer. And that's what he was trying to say in a, in a non-scientific way. Um, but it's, it's, it's very true. So that's why you have these characters and these ideas in the middle of the night. And uh, in my process, uh, you know, my wife just laughs at me because, I mean, there have been times when, you know, I, I'll get up in the morning and I'll have half a legal pad full of single-spaced just chicken scratch from what I was kind of downloading is the only way I'm channeling it. It maybe is another way of saying it. Um, and I've learned over the years that when I have a thought like that, I, I have to write it down. I, I, it's not like you could say, oh, I'll remember that in the morning because I never do. So I always get up and I, even tired as I might be and half, half groggy, I will write it all down and without any editorializing, without any intellectual input from me whatsoever, I just, whatever is in my brain, I just get it on paper, then I go back to bed. And, um, you know, a couple of the best television episodes I ever wrote uh, literally were written in, in that exact fashion, then told the whole episode. Um, and uh, and both of my novels to date, same thing, you know, the the you get these characters, when you know what you're writing about and you know who's in it and you know the journey they're on, um, you get out of the way mm. and let them let them tell you because they are real and uh, any of your writer guests will probably say versions of the same thing and probably mm -hmm. have, but the you don't sit and say, okay, now let's see, what would be a good thing for Sherry to say here to Tom? Hmm, and then you sit and ponder, what would Sherry say to Tom? No, you just relax, and Sherry's in your head, and she will say something, and you write it down, because Sherry knows probably better than you do what it is that she wants to be said, and, and the character Sherry, and so that's my process and it is all consuming and it's a long answer to your question but uh, I, I, I have a real problem uh, not a problem but it's it's I can't uh, you know sit down and, and read something until I'm finished you know or if I'm going to take a week off which you know you do periodically you're kind of burned out and and you're looking for something to distract you then it's great you know then I get these novels uh, that people send me or that I have picked up along the way or that I have a stack of them and you know on a shelf that I've never read I always wanted to that's a good time to pick one up and it's pure pleasure then because I'm not I've shut down everything and I'm just refreshing but uh, those are few and far between yeah I can understand that it's funny because when I was in college I was uh I was always writing stories I was I was acting and I was writing stories and I was writing plays and I was always doing something. But yep. it was like I got the idea about sleeping from Shirley MacLaine's book Out on the Limb. She was working and she was working on the thing and she couldn't figure out what to do with something and she just she took her notepads and and everything put it beside her on her bed put the uh, covers over her head and went to sleep and when she woke up she knew exactly what to do and i thought oh what a good idea 
but that's that's a version of what my, my writing teacher Robert, Robert Dennis said, and it it is it is an amazing thing if you relax into a problem. Many times it'll get solved, uh, uh, you know, and you know, people can 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 pray as a version of that. They can just meditate as a version of that. There's all kinds of ways to relax yourself and give yourself over to whatever it is that you need to resolve or to think about or to to create. And um, it, it's it's a it's kind of a freaky way to make a uh, make a living. I'll, I'll say, or or even as an avocation, to just to to live your life that way. But I don't know any other way, you know, frankly, of 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 living. And when I'm not writing something, I'm not entirely comfortable, you know, in my own kind of skin. In a way, I I like hanging out with these characters and being with them. And I've always been that way, you know. And but like you, I wrote in school and all, but it was mostly journalism kind of things. But then when I started doing fiction, and TV shows, um, there's nothing like it. You know, you 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 go into their world and you occupy their world with them, and you are among them and, in a very unique way. And um, I'm in the same way a reader of a great novel or you're watching a great movie and you get swept into the story. You're not an observer anymore. You're somehow participating and it's a fly on the wall. And, and it's like that for writers. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're in the zone, I call it, but it, if you're not in the zone, then it's a lot of hard work and word craft. But if you're in the zone, it's just uh, extraordinary, really I, extraordinary. I always, uh, because of the, the, the right, the characters in my head, I always thought, and, and it even happens when I'm reading a book. It, uh, after I finish the book, the characters were still there, and they they continue for a little time, not forever, but sure. but but it's just I kind of felt like there's a um, you know the string theory about universes of being side oh, by uh, side by side. I thought there was a universe for fiction, for characters in fiction. That well, there's a separate, like, one of the string universes is characters from fiction. <laughs> well, it, you know, who's to say that's not true? But it, in a very real sense, it's like a song you can't get out of your head. You know, you hear it on the radio, and then, you know, you, you literally it's driving you crazy because that song plays over and over and over again. Um, there's something about uh, the way creativity lands on the consumer, of it, you know, that that uh, it can be very profound in, in all the definitions of the word profound. And um, uh, and when somebody can do that and kind of smack a, a reader or a viewer, you know, upside the head with what they've done and, and you're thinking about it for days and, and you know, reliving scenes that you've seen. And it's happen it happens to me all the time. I'll watch something and late at night, you know, I can't go to sleep, so I'll flip on the TV and it could be anything an old episode of Murder She Wrote doesn't matter what it is and just I just want to go to sleep and I'm just kind of waiting for my my body to shut down and, and you know I'm I'm reliving some of those scenes you know in you know, when I go to bed what's that all about well because that's somebody wrote something created something that had that kind of impact and you know that's what we 
we strive for. You know, it's uh, uh, you know with the the books I'm writing. You know, when somebody when it resonates with somebody on a, on a a level other than just passive entertainment, uh, boy, that's a great feeling. And mm-hmm. and the TV shows that I used to do, um, you know, whether it's a fan letter that comes through or or a, a reviewer that says something or a colleague in the industry, um, and and you realize that you touched something, you touched a nerve, uh, an awareness, boy, that's just extraordinary. And it's, you know, I, I, I feel kind of feel sorry for people who don't have that in their lives mm-hmm. on some level. You don't have to do it professionally, but just to be able to, you know, paint a painting and, and, and show it at a, at a weekend art fair and have people like it, even if they don't buy it. You know, if, if you don't have something like that in your life, um, I, I, I don't know how, how people kind of, uh, how do they function if you don't have some kind of a reciprocal relationship with the world around you? And that's what this is. It's reciprocal. You know, the the thing about fiction writing, whether it's TV shows or movies or novels or plays, is that our job as writers is both to interpret life experiences and intensify them for people. Mm-hmm. So that's the job. And so, and we've, probably talked about this on your show once before but it's it's really true you know it's not just a a love story it's the most romantic love story it's not just a scary scene it's the scariest scene in the history of scary scenes and so you interpret what it's like to be alive and uh, under certain circumstances and then you intensify those experiences those emotions for people um for for their escape and for their connection connection to what you've done, and um, you know what a what a cool job you know? yeah. <laughs> just you know to tell people what you think about things and intensify them whatever it is it could be your 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 political views your your social views your your personal relationship views your historical perspectives it doesn't matter what it is you get to share what you think about stuff thematically with with the world and uh and then when it lands like you're describing you know where you 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 read read a book or see a movie and and it's still playing in your head for days boy that's that's wonderful that's success doesn't matter if somebody got paid for it or not that's success yeah and it's always been like that even when i was a kid i used okay this is really corny but I I was two shows I was obsessed with when I was a little girl. One was Bewitched and one was That Girl. And I used to walk home. My dad used to take me to school and most days I would walk home. And but I walked home by myself. So I would create an entire thing about either Bewitched or That Girl where I was in it and I was acting as a part of it. I it was. It sounds crazy, but <laughs> that's how I made it to. I was entertaining myself on my way home from school by pretending I was um, part of Samantha's family and that I was the cousin and I was a witch. And I mean, I had this whole storyline going. <laughs> well, but you know what? It's not. It's not weird or crazy. It, it, again, 
maybe to some people, uh, but if they think back, the, the marvelous thing about actors especially is when we're children, we all have the ability to have imaginary friends and playing, you know, and building forts out of cardboard boxes and girls and, you know, playing with dolls and what, all that. We have that wonderful free imagination. And then as we get older, we lose it. Most people lose it. And, it, it, you know, your adult uh, kind of rules of life take over. Actors either never lose it or they go through extensive training to recapture it so they can reconstitute it for audiences. Um, because as you know, acting is not acting. Acting is being the other, the other character. Mm -hmm. You don't pretend, you're not pretending anything. You're, you, you, you are in it. You believe it's true. You're, you're the more truthful your, your, your perspective, your performance, the more effective it is. So, um, so it's not that weird, and writers do the same thing. We, you know, we're constantly um, uh, imagining whatever it is—the perfect crime, the the perfect this, the what. The, the it never. Once you start thinking along those lines, it they, it does not go away, and it's um, uh, uh, it, it it it's a very different kind of set of mu muscles, I'll call them mentally, uh, than, than uh, the average person. But, um, you know, they have fantasies and imaginations too, imaginings, I guess is a better way of putting it. Um, but it's maybe not as active. It's been repressed by their lives, the problems of their lives and the, the responsibilities of their lives and so forth. Um, uh, or a difficult past that Becomes like a, an obstacle to them accessing this. Whatever it is, um, there's a lot of people like that. And I go back to my other comment of, you know, I I, I feel sorry for people that don't get to experience that because I know for a fact that while you were a little girl doing that, you still do it now to some yeah, extent I do. because you're you, you're an artist, and and it that stuff doesn't go away. You know, it's like the old thing about the 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 big hunk chunk of granite, you know, and it's like, well, I don't make anything. I just take away the parts that don't belong there. You know, it's a, it, it, the artist sees the end product and they just chip away at, at the excess. And, um, and so that's the same kind of point of view, I think for, for, for you and all artists and me, uh, that you, you, it's it's a different way to look at the world and to experience the world and and then you share that with people whatever it is and by the way speaking of the bewitched uh, family Dick Sargent was a friend of ours uh, Samantha's second uh, husband mm -hmm. on the show and uh, what a wonderful guy he was and had some wonderful stories because he and uh, Elizabeth Montgomery were very very close friends and uh, uh, so just. You mentioned that. I just bring it up. I, I actually got to be a peripheral <laughs> 18th generation uh, member of that family by just simply being a friend of Dick's. That is so cool. I mean, and do you know um, that Dick Sargent was actually um, William Ash Asher, William Asher's first choice? But he couldn't do it because he was doing another show. 
So uh, uh, they had Dick York, which was I, I, who I was don't great. Remember that, but I'm not surprised. Uh, but Dick York was phenomenal. He was. But, uh, they both uh, were. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And the people think that Dick Sargent was cast because he resembled Dick York. Um, it had some of the same kind of mannerisms, uh, the big the big take, we would call it, you know, the big reactions. But in fact, uh, I, I know that he was a, a kind of a part of that. I, I had forgotten maybe that I, I knew that. It's been so long now. But anyway, wonderful guy, and, and uh, uh, I miss, miss him because we had many social activities with a mutual group of friends, and uh, he was a, really a wonderful man. You know, you were, you were, we were talking in the green room about um, Phantom of the Opera, and I was telling you about the curtain call. And what you were saying reminded me of something. When I went to see The Phantom the first time, I was in my 20s, and I floated home on that music, and it lasted at least two or three weeks. Um, and I had I bought the cassettes at the at the theater, and I was play, I mean I probably drove my family nuts because I was playing that all the time. <laughs> yep, yeah, of course, yeah. But again, that they you know a, a classic story retold and repackaged in a new, very vibrant way, with you know spectacular production values and and all of that and and uh, it does stuff like that does stay with you and that is what success of art is you know it's like the painting that you buy and you have hanging in the hallway you know on the way to the bedroom or whatever that gives you pleasure every time you see it even though you don't see it every time you walk by it you know you get used to things but then every once in a while you look at it and go oh wow and it bring gives you pleasure and that's art you know it's uh not necessarily a dynamic, dynamic thing. It's uh, not intensity, but it's it's there's a there's a, a pleasure and you know some kind of pheromones or something are released in your brain and and uh, and it happens in all kinds of different ways. It's really interesting. And my mother was an artist, and I have a bunch. My brother and I both have a lot of her stuff, and I feel that way. I mean, I feel that way about stuff I bought too, but. When I see when I when I stuff like you said you see it all the time because it's hanging on your wall, but when I look at it sometimes I just it it brings my mom back. <laughs> well, yes, and of, of course it does. And um, you know we assign um, uh, special meaning, if not emotion, to objects all the time. You know, it's the the paperweight that was on your grandfather's desk and whatever, you know, and and it and it and it, in a way it does keep them with us, if not literally, uh, figuratively. And then when you've got something like a work of art that that someone close to you created, I mean that is them. You know, you're investing she invested a part of herself, big part of herself at that moment in time in that painting and now you get to share that very directly with her and she with you after all this time and you know, my dad when he was a, a kid I think in high school uh, took a shop class and he, he made a desk a really nice desk and that was the desk my brothers and I always did our homework on and my younger brother has the desk now it was really well made and it's kind of shocking that 
he knew how to do stuff like that. But every time I would sit down, you know, long after he was gone and do something at that desk, you know, I was near him. Mm-hmm. And it isn't corny. It's it's real. You know, he, you know, he he smoothed those edges. He did this. He did that. He made this. He cut that. And um, so, you know, you hope as a writer um, that that you know some old TV episode that one of your guests or I might have done. Uh, if somebody sees it uh, and it and it entertains them or touches them or makes them laugh or whatever. Um, you know that, that can happen a hundred years from now, and that's that's a what kind of a, a great feeling, you know, that you did leave something behind. And and uh, you know how many times have you looked at a an acting performance? We talked about Bewitched. If you see a, a reunion of that, you know, all those people are gone now. Yeah. But they are still somewhere in the in the in the in the ether, you know, and and. Um, and you get to enjoy them all over again, and it may have great meaning for you. Whatever it is, the show, your favorite show as a, as a child, or, or or your favorite movie, you know, when you were in college, or who knows what. But um, that's part of what the whole art thing is about, I think. And again, it's a privilege to be a part of that world and to know that some of this stuff um, will resonate. For a long, long time, and maybe forever, and that's cool. And that is one of the things, and I think it's part of my creative mind is that I remember. I I may not remember the name of the episode, but I remember every TV show and every movie, pretty much verbatim, that I've ever loved. I can't remember what I ate yesterday, but I can tell yeah. you. At the first five seconds of a MASH episode, what it's about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that something? And, um, I mean, if you just really stop and think about that, um, somebody changed your life, you know, at the time when you saw it because it resonated deeply enough and you've probably seen it a few times since, and then you see it again, and it all comes back. Mm-hmm. There's like this, you know, actors call it sense memory, you know, trying to reconstitute an emotional experience for whatever role they're in. And and it's it's kind of that. It, you, you get back in touch with something. Um, you know, it's like um, uh, sense of smell. You know, you walk into a room, and I remember I went, I was on location on a TV show, and we went to some restaurant, it was in an old house, and I went, for some reason, the back, maybe the restroom or something, and uh, I went down some stairs, and I stopped, and it was like somebody had smacked me in the face. It was the smell of my grandparents' house in Michigan when I was like six years old, and it was a... A, a musty, slightly, um, I don't know, uh, maybe some mineral oil on the wood, whatever it was, there was a blend of, of, of scents that stopped me. And I actually pulled my phone out and called my older brother and said, oh my God, I've just been at grandma and grandpa's house in my head. And I told him about it. He remembered exactly the smell I was talking about. 
and it had been, you know, 50 years since since we were there and, and experienced it. But those, that's the same kind of thing you're talking about. The first couple of minutes of a show and all this stuff comes back to you. And you, you know, whatever it is, a certain scent of... Uh, Perfume, and you re- remember your Aunt Bertha, you know, and 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 it's so specific, and all of these memories and emotions come back. Um, of course, as writers, we try to we try to replicate that for readers, um, and uh, you know, sometimes successfully, but you try, you try to take them into moments that we all share as human beings to try to get across whatever's happening, the feeling of the moment, the emotion of the moment, the tension of the moment, um, with those kinds of cues. The sound cues, smells, the touch, you know, the crunch of the peanut shell under your feet, you know, in a, in a, in a sports bar or whatever. Though, though, those things all have meaning when they're assigned to certain things, whether it's in a dramatic scene you're creating or in somebody's life that, that uh, because we've all had experiences, sensory experiences that are in common, and the the what I'm loving about writing novels now is that I get to do that, um, as opposed to trying to uh, defer some of those things to the production designer and the director and the costumer and and the sound team and all of that, um, uh, and hope that it all comes together and, and gets across to everybody that you get to do that on your own as the primary creative artist and not just a member of a team. Um, it's, it's, it's really cool. And then when you hit those things, like, you know, whatever it is, like the bewitched, the little girl walking down the street, pretending she's in bewitched, um, uh, that's, um, such a unique, it's hard to even put this in the words, isn't it? But it's, 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 uh, uh it's a privilege to be a part of that, either to be able to do it or to experience it when somebody does it really well and it impacts you, uh, it's phenomenal. It's, it's, I, sometimes I don't tell people that because it sounds weird to them, but it's just something that I've always done. I've always, if, even it's, it could be a book. Um, I'm a big fan of Agatha Christie and if I'm rereading an Agatha Christie, it doesn't shut off when I I finish the chapter and I'm going to go to sleep. It goes, it keeps going. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, um, oh, I just blanked on her name. Uh, interview with a vampire. Um, and Rice. Yeah. You know, same same thing. I mean, you're talking about very intense um, uh, connections, emotional, sensory connections uh, in in that in that writing that, and in, in the various screen versions that comes across, um, it's, uh, you know, real skills. That's for sure. Now you're a television guy. So I have to ask this question. You know how many different adaptions certain, uh, writers have of their stories. Does Mm -hmm. it ever bother you if they, they take the, it in, sort of a strange direction that actually doesn't seem to fit the story at all um or do you because you're a writer and you you were and you are a screenwriter you just well that's just the way it is i mean does it bother you when it doesn't seem to fit 
Ah, okay. When when somebody has adapted a, a book or something that I like, and I and and they made choices that well, I don't know that that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the word yes, sure, it bothers me uh, like it would bother anybody. Um, what people need to remember is that number one, this is not an exact science; it's art, um, and. Um, how do you take a 400 or 800 page novel and turn it into a 100 or 120 page screenplay? Mm-hmm. Right off the bat, something's got to go. Because in a screenplay, you know, it's not margin to margin, you know, single spaced like a book would be. The, the, the dialogue is in a very narrow format in down the center, uh, you know, two or three inches wide. And, and so it, it may, may, be 100 or 120 pages, but it's actually, if you put it in a Microsoft Word format like a novel would be, um, it would be a lot less than that. So how do you take 400 pages of something that you love and turn it into the equivalent of 70 pages or 75 pages? Uh, that's a magic trick, and, and it's really hard to do. Um, there's rules of adaptation that you know are, are helpful. Um, you know, like you don't undermine or reverse the meaning or the morals of the source material. You, 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 it's called fidelity. You have fidelity to the original material. Um, what is the thing that made it compelling in the first place? You try to save that. Um, but also you have the obligation. It's not just a privilege, but the obligation to change things because all the plots are not going to be there. They can't be. All the characters are not going to be there. They can't be. You don't have 400 pages. You have, um, you know, far less than that. So primary decisions have to be made, tough decisions. What do we leave out and what do we save? And if we're saving it, we probably can't save it in the exact same form it was in in the novel. Um, you're going to have to condense things, combine things, maybe take detours, you know, eliminate things and go from A to L and skip a bunch of stuff in between because you don't have the page count. You don't have the screen time. You've got a two-hour movie, and if you shot everything as it was originally written, kind of like a novel, you know, it would be a 15- or 20-hour movie. And unless it's for a TV miniseries, which now, of course, is popular, where you can do more of, you can include more of the original material, then you you have to make some tough, tough, tough decisions. That's, I think it's one reason that many times novelists struggle and fail doing adaptations of their own work because everything is precious to them. And they don't have the objectivity of well, what's really crucial and what's less crucial and can we live without the less crucial and just stay with the most important? Um, and it's it's a it's a, a a specific set of writing skills, uh, frankly. And um, and it it um, analyzing the material objectively is really really um, uh, essential. You know, it's like a doctor has to analyze all the lab work and all the radiology of the patient, and you have to be objective about it. And then you, you your allegiance, in the case of a screenwriter adapting a, a novel, is not to the novel 
it's to the movie. You, know, you, have to, you, you revered the novel, you understand why somebody wanted to make it into a movie, now your allegiance is to the movie. What's the best movie we can make drawing from the primary elements that, that must be honored? And other stuff isn't going to be there. And, and if people are too possessive of those things, then they're going to be disappointed and they probably should never, they shouldn't see the movie, you know, and other times choices are made and they actually improve the overall impact of the story. Even though all the interstitial steps of getting from beginning to the end of the story have changed, sometimes there's, there's eight different ways you can get to the same ending, but perhaps some of them are more efficient than others. And that's an art form. Uh, when I worked on on um, the TV series Christie, uh, based on Catherine Marshall's novel, um, people had tried to make that into a movie for years, and they couldn't do it. And Patricia Green was a writer I worked uh, was a friend of mine, a writer I wound up working for. Somehow figured out how to tell that story as a two-hour TV pilot. First thing she it was a very it's a very if you ever read the book it's a very dense novel. Uh, a lot of uh, kind of episodic things that happened to this girl over the course of her first year um, as a as a kind of been a coming of age story, and the mistake was people tried to tell that whole story. Well, you can't do it effectively. So Pat figured out how to tell the first part of the book, make it feel like a complete movie, and. A, kept the essence of all the things in that first part of the book alive and well, <clears throat> some of it verbatim, some of it completely in, invented by her. And people that saw that movie would swear that it was word for word right out of the book. And it was not. Mm -hmm. It was a magic <laughs> trick. And then, and it was a pilot for a series, but had the series not uh, uh, been ordered, everybody would have been perfectly happy to see that movie and they would have felt satisfied even though it was just the first portion of the of the book uh, that she covered and then we had two years of the series some of the episodes were drawn pretty closely to elements of the novel and others were completely invented um, both to shore up primary elements but also to tell a more complete story now that we had a whole you know we had like 22 of these to do a year so now you can really get into the minutiae of life and the relationships and and the book didn't have nearly enough of them for that you know Catherine Marshall didn't plan on doing a weekly TV series um, and the 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 trick is like like with an actor you know giving a truthful performance you have to have truthful script elements are so good, so close, so so um, attached to the spirit of the original, of the source material, that people would swear to you that it came right out of the novel. And that's really hard to do. And that, uh, kudos to Pat Green, because she figured it out. And she steered that bus for, for, for me, the episodes I wrote, and all the episodes written by the other writers. They felt like they came right out of the pages of the book. And um, and other people had tried that and, and not succeeded. Uh, I mean, several writers and some good ones. Uh, they just couldn't figure out how to do it. So it's, I use the word magic trick, but it's kind of is a magic trick. 
Um, and some people are better magicians than others. It's funny. You, you, you made me remember something. There were a couple of movies that were like that, that really sticks out to me. One of them is Sense of Sensibility, written by Emma Thompson back in the right. 90s. Yeah. She got it. She, it, I mean, there, and the thing is, is that there were parts of it that were not in the book that she created. But people said, oh, I, I'm so glad you kept that scene from the book because it's one of my favorite scenes. And she's like, um, okay. <laughs> well, that's right. Exactly. That, but that's what I'm talking about. She had fidelity to the source material. And the fidelity that she understood what the material was about to the point where she could take this large printed story and boil it down into its essence. And some of the essence was manifested differently than the written page. And nobody knew it. And it happened to us on Christie uh, quite a few times. There were entire characters uh, that uh, people oh my I'm so glad I love that that's that my favorite character for the book no that was completely imaginary <laughs> we, we, we thought the writing staff or Pat Green thought of that that wasn't in the book but that meant it worked and uh, uh, you know in the there's been some of the greatest movies ever made were adaptations and they didn't keep much of the original book and yet it still felt like it you know honored the book and others were, you know, probably disasters. And uh, I don't know, it, it, if this were easy, you know, everybody would, would successfully adapt things, but it's it's uh, it's a tooth pull sometimes, you know. The, the stories about Francis Coppola and, and the Godfather um, novel are, you know, legendary, you know, that uh, he and Mario Puzo, uh, Puzo worked very hard on the screenplay uh, of of that movie, the first movie, and and then when they were shooting it, he didn't even shoot from the script. He 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 only referred to the novel for all the textures and colors and and things that he wanted to remember. And millions of notes. There's a wonderful video on YouTube of 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 Coppola's preparation for The Godfather, and he he's, he goes through his his uh, director's notebook, and it's worth looking at if anybody really wants to see how a master director and writer will approach something with great, great um, um, uh, sincerity and reverence. But he, he actually took the novel and pulled it apart page by page and put it into a binder. And then he you know, put those pages on other pages and then wrote in the margins all the things he wanted to remember. Now the script was written and there was additional dialogue and all those stuff that you put in a script because you know you have to have people talking to each other in scenes in a different way than a novel um, but his fidelity was to what Mario Puzo wrote and the way he wrote it and he wanted to make sure he never forgot the feeling of the scenes and uh, and people would swear that you know he shot the novel you know verbatim well he didn't uh, when you look at all all three Godfather movies, it feels like that's the entire novel, and he covered everything. But there's a lot of new and and wonderful invention in that. It's interesting because sometimes 
when a a creator, somebody, I'm thinking, I just read for the first time 39 Steps. I, I've seen the movie a zillion times with Robert Donet. And uh, I there's so much in the movie that wasn't in the book. I mean, actually, there was a lot added to it and taken out, and they changed things and everything. But both were great. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, well, first of all, it's Hitchcock, so of course it's great. But it was, it it's so interesting because when I read 39 Steps, I'm like, I'm expecting the stuff that I've seen in the movie. And when it wasn't there, I'm like, oh. But it didn't disappoint me at the same time. It was a really good book. Does that make sense? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, of course it makes sense. And the 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 thing about remember, all and all books are not the same, just like all movies are not the same. So you have you know the the, the novelist creates everything, describes everything that appears in the novel, and including what characters are thinking and what they're remembering and all of those, all what their emotions are. Well, on screen you can't do that. You know, you 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 can't say Sherry walked in the room and remembered her her childhood when she was ten years old, skipping down the street, pretending she was. I mean, you can't do that. How do you show that on screen? Well, maybe a flashback. Is the flashback appropriate there, like it was in the novel? It might it might be, but it also doing flashbacks can can be an encumberment uh, to the forward motion of a movie. So maybe you don't want that. Maybe she just tells somebody in a new scene, you know, her new best friend that's not in the novel, you know, where she tells, you know, uh, Lola that, uh, uh, you know, I couldn't believe, I was like, I was pretending I was in Bewitched and I loved her. Well, that scene's not in the book, but maybe that's how the screenwriter gets across Sherry's exuberance and her imagination as a 10-year-old girl. And, um, you know, some novels don't have a lot of plot. Some novels are very experiential there's a lot of description and there's a lot of mood, but there's not really that much plot. Well, that's not going to fly in a movie. You're going to wind up with a really bad, uh, you know, uh, like watching paint dry kind of movie. Movies have a certain mandate. You have to move forward. You have to, you know, people are used to things having a beginning and a middle and an end, and it's got to have a point to it. And so something, sometimes you have to invent plot elements that don't exist in the book just to get to the to whatever the finale is in a more entertaining fashion and if you do it right people are going to swear it was in the book and 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 if not then you know so be it but um it's uh, uh, you know it many writers have tried and failed to adapt their favorite books you know and and um and, and there's lots of reasons why that can happen, that's for sure, and uh, including the person that wrote the novel. Uh, I can tell you that if somebody were to come to me tomorrow and said uh, about my first book, especially uh, Silent Partners, we want to make this movie, we want you to do the screenplay. And I'm a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm being very honest, I would have to think about it because there's aspects of the novel that I don't know how I would sitting here today trans 
transpose into screenplay format. It's very psychological. Um, what do you do? You know, you have voiceovers, and then I walked in the room and I was terrified. You know, well, that's a style of screenwriting. I don't know that I would want to do that. So now what do you do? How do you convey the kind of inner monologue of a, of a, a, a character where so much of it is on based on that? How do you tell that in um, proactive, forward motion uh, movie writing? And I don't know for absolute certainty that I could. I would probably just out of pride want to try, but I don't know that I would. It might be better for somebody else to do it, and if they have a question, they can call me. But I, you know, I don't. It's it's an interesting question because I now have come to respect the differences between the the craft of screenwriting and the craft of writing prose in a way that I never I never did or had you know before you know it's it's a completely different thing and so then to go back and put try to put this into the screenplay format it would maybe be like putting the round peg in the square hole type of thing I don't know um, and and I'm somebody that was perfectly comfortable writing screenplays for a lot of years but now I'm doing this, and I like the, the kind of expansive view of the story world that I get to have now. And when you do screenplay, you're not the primary artist, um, and there are a lot of other artists that are going to have things to say and, and do with your work. And I'm kind of getting spoiled, <laughs> you know. I, I really, it's like this is this is cool to be. To, to be God, you know, and sit here and and do what I want to do the way I want to do it, and and have people like it and or whatever. It's 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 really cool. There's so. a there's a freedom with novel writing that you would never have in any kind of thing like plays or, or screenplays or anything like that. Because it's you. I mean, I know you know, but it, it it's the same thing. Because uh, I write plays that there's a format there's a way to do it i mean you can you can break the rules a little bit when you're writing a play but you have to basically you're still writing a play <laughs> that's right and oh no absolutely so i think it's the same thing that you're talking about as a screenwriter it's that there's a format there's a way to do it you have a certain amount of pages you have a certain acts and you have a certain amount of pages within those acts and everything there's a lot of rules you can break the rules but you still can't be like a novelist where you're going to have 300 pages or 400 pages <laughs> well and but i'll even now impose a larger set of restrictions which will probably make anybody listening to this never want to be a screenwriter <laughs> no, but the, the, the there's real world uh aspects that get imposed on you when you're writing a screenplay. I don't care who you are as a screen screenwriter. Um, you you write your screenplay, whether it's an original or an adaptation, and you've got 30 speaking parts. You've got 50 locations. You've got uh, a bunch of production elements. You're going to make some storms. You're going to have uh, blow some buildings up. All kinds of things are happening, right? And then somebody says, yes, we're going to make your movie, Sherry, but um, we're prepared to spend 
$20 million making this. We budgeted your script as written, and it's $50 million. You have to make some choices because we're not shooting everything you wrote. Now you now you have to figure out okay well what can I well I can combine some characters the lesser characters I can eliminate some characters completely I can uh, eliminate some locations because every time you go to a location it's it, you have to rent the location you have to dress the location with the art with the art department you have to move the company there with trucks and it's it's a big deal so maybe I just you have fewer locations. Maybe I don't have as much action or, 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 you know, like powers of nature type of things. You know, maybe I, maybe I don't have the hurricane, um, you know, blow the town away. Maybe there's another way to do put the town at risk without having to create a hurricane and blow the sets apart. Um, and and so you have to make choices that are real world practical choices. Like every family sitting down doing a budget, well, okay, how much money do we have this month? Which bills are we not going to pay? And and so, the in a novel, you write whatever you want to write. It doesn't matter. You can have 500 locations if it works for the story. 500 locations, but trust me, if it's going to get filmed, it's somebody else's money, and if it's their money. They're going to have everything to say about, here's what we liked about what you wrote, here's what we're, we hated what you wrote, and here's what we're never going to spend a dime on what you wrote. Fix it. And then if you can't, then they'll, they'll either tell you what they want changed specifically or they'll bring someone else who will, which is one reason you see multiple writers credited on, on so many movies and TV shows is that at some point – Either the first writer didn't work out, uh, the first writer um, couldn't figure out how to solve their their problems. Um, someone else imposed and said, "Hey, I have a better idea. I, uh, let's get let's get somebody else in here to to get a different take on this story." And um, and you wind up sometimes with many many, or med, literally many writers and. Uh, some of your other guests and I have all done arbitrations, credit arbitrations for the Writers Guild, where um, Writers Guild members volunteer to figure out who gets what credit for writing an episode or a movie. And I've done many of these uh, over the years. Steve Sears, who we both know, has done a bunch of these as well. And it's complicated because you have, let's say there's three writers. You have writer A, writer B, writer C. You never know their names. And you read what writer A submitted as their work. Then you read what writer B did. And then you read writer C, which is the shooting draft. And you have to figure out who contributed the most at what stage to both the story and to the actual completed screenplay. And there are rules that you're supposed to follow to try to adjudicate that and three three different writers read the same material anonymously we don't know who the writers are we don't know who each other might be and and then you vote on how the end credits should be and if you know it's a majority rule type of thing very complicated and especially if there's source material so now you're reading let's say a, a novel or a, or a short story or a magazine article or something and that's where it all came from and then the, the first writer 
did an adaptation that they didn't want to go with. Second writer comes in and changes all the character names and changes some dialogue, but no, changes nothing of actual substance. And they want full credit for it. And then the third writer comes in and changes a few things. But maybe what they did was they just went back to the original source material and put more of that in. And who gets the correct credit for that? And it's not perfect, but it's a very good system. It's actually been upheld in the courts that the Writers Guild is the official legal determiner of screen credit um, for movies and TV uh, because you have professional writers doing this anonymously and we've all been subjected to this. We've all had things rewritten of ours or we've all rewritten somebody else's material and then it has to get arbitrated. Who wrote the story? Who wrote the, who wrote the teleplay? And what combination? Um, was it one person or three people divided up? And, um, you know, it can, it can get, well, uh, it's very time consuming to do that. I'll tell you that. Sometimes you're reading many versions of things. You're reading a treatment that somebody wrote and then they, they threw that out and somebody else wrote a treatment. And then the third writer comes in and goes back to the first treatment that a different guy wrote. And your job is to figure it out fairly and uh, both for their career, um, you know, screen credit career, but also the residuals that they might get or, or, or even profit sharing if, if they have that in their contract. It is dependent on whether or not they get screen credit or not. Gosh, I, I wouldn't want to do that. I would feel bad. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. You don't feel bad. Um, I, I mean, I, I, it's not that I've never felt bad, but the truth is we're all professionals. And um, and and the writers also they 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 submit they write a little uh, a, a statement that goes with their work to so the the reviewer panel can see what it is you know they 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 describe the process for them you know they hired me to do this I read the book I did an outline they and then I, and blah 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 but I've read the the, sh the final shooting script and I think it'd be fair for the last writer and me to share credit for this movie and you know that's a that's a, a, a fair you know kind of thing for the first writer to say mm -hmm. then the last writer comes in and says uh, I, we threw everything out I did everything from scratch and I should get sole credit for this well then you look at, at his or her work and, and you compare it to the writer A's work and you go you know this is very heavily based on what the original writer did and uh, and very very heavily based in all the right ways on what the original source material was so this this person's coming in trying to trying to basically undercut somebody else's work and and kind of claim it as their own not that they didn't uh, contribute a lot uh, but maybe not enough to get sole credit certainly not enough to get sole credit, maybe not even enough to get any credit because there's a, a rule that for a writer to get, a subsequent writer to, to, to get credit over the original writer, you have to contribute substantially more to the overall project than the first writer. Well, that's a lot. You know, if, if somebody wrote, you know, multiple drafts, and, you know, and then they, then they were dismissed from the project and somebody came in to rewrite them, that person has to change everything you know, I mean, not everything, over half. 
and you're talking about thematically and characters, not just character names. That's an old trick. They come in, change the names, and try to get credit for it. But you don't just go in and change dialogue around, and in the in the is the scene is essentially the same. Um, it has to be a really substantial rewrite for them to get any credit at all. And so a lot of times the last person uh, goes away mad because they've convinced themselves that they wrote it. Well, no, they did a good job on what they did, but the first writer or even the first two writers maybe really wrote it. And the, you know, the other person polished it. Well, polishing is not really writing as any TV producer will tell you, you know, I don't know how many scripts I've rewritten and polished and I never even asked for a credit because I did my job. They hired me to be the person to kind of get it ready for production. But the first writer did the best they could and they did a good job and it wasn't perfect. Well, so what, you know, that's, and you know, but there are people who will, um, sadly, there are producers and directors who will do everything possible to take something that already exists and then to change it just enough so they can get at least some credit for it because they want the residuals later. And that's kind of cheesy, I think. Yeah, not, not, and you, you you find yourself getting a little irritated at some of the statements, the grandiose statements these writers make, trying to persuade you that they they really wrote this and what the other person wrote is irrelevant. And we've all been there, and we all know it may not may not, may not be a lot left in their of their work in the finished product, but there's enough there that somebody built on top of it. You didn't start over from scratch. You didn't face a blank computer screen like the first writer did. You know, you came in after they did all these all this work and their work should be honored. The first writer is almost always honored, at least with a shared credit, sometimes with a story credit. But, um, but again, these things are complicated, just like the adaptations and, and, and then, okay, well, not just an adaptation, but it's rewrites and revisions, and who did what, and to what extent did they do it? Um, we're almost at the end, so I just want to know about your book. What's the latest one about, or can you tell me? <laughs> well, I can tell you that, uh, yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, it's uh, a revenge comedy. My second novel, A Devious Thinking, was a revenge comedy, and I really had uh, a lot of fun writing that, and uh, the response has been really strong, and... Uh, I was in a mischievous mood when I wrote that, and uh, and I'm still in a mischievous mood. This one is about Hollywood TV writers, so it's about people like Steve Sears and me and, and probably many of your other guests. Um, we are all part, you know, composite elements of these characters, I assure you. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's a little, it's not Get Shorty, but it, it's closest to get shorty of anything I can think of in that it's a dark satire of, of, of Hollywood, of TV in particular. And, you know, the kind of, um, um, vacuous elitism of it all and the pretentiousness of, of at least some of the people that you deal with and, and many of the eccentricities you and I've been talking about, about writing and kind of how strange, if not goofy, uh, some of, this process is and the people who experience it and write these things so um, I'm making fun of myself and all my friends and people I've worked with 
and the process of what that was with the agents and the actors and the studio heads and all of that. Uh, so I'm having a lot of fun with it. it. It ought to be out, I think, this summer. And um, it's called Poster Boys is the title. And, um, you know, I if I get it right, it, it'll really be a fun for everybody. And we'll see if I get it right or not. But I'm having a, just a whopping good time, I'll tell you, because... You know, now that I'm, I think maybe the reason I can do this novel now is that I no longer live in Los Angeles. This is our fifth year here now in Charleston, and um, I have just enough time away from all of that to see it with a different uh, clarity. And I, uh, uh, and I still, of course, have friends that are there and in the business and teaching screenwriting and what have you, and and. Uh, uh, but I'm I'm now far enough away that I I, I can view it maybe a little more um, acerbically <laughs> than when I was there, uh, and I'm I'm having fun. That's terrific. Um, we're at the end. Uh, could you do you have a website? Um, and what social do. media are you on? The website is tomblumquist.com, and uh, the somebody wanted to reach me, the best way is uh, I'm on Facebook as Tom Blumquist and just message me and I get back to you. Um, uh, but at the website, there's stuff about me, um, stuff about my two novels and some trailers and commercials and, and whatever that I've prepared for those that um, I also had fun doing since I'm a filmmaker. I, one thing I can do uh, is, is make a a kind of a movie trailer about a book that I wrote. So I've had a, a good time. The, the, the first novel, uh, Silent Partners, the, the trailer is big and epic and kind of movie, uh, movie-like, big studio movie feel. And the others, um, because Devious Thinking is a, 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 a silly, you know, con game kind of romp of a story, all of the promos are silly. And it got to the point where people were, were shooting them and sending them to me. Um, one of them, uh, Bella Shaw, was one of the original CNN anchors uh, for many years, very popular newscaster. And she really liked the book and had spent a lot of time in Rome where the story is mostly set. And so she wrote and shot a promo. She put on old lady makeup and <laughs> sent me this thing said, gee, I hope you like this. Well, it's, it's hilarious. And, and I mean, if you don't read the book, at least look at Bella Shaw's promo on my website because it is hilarious. And, um, you know, I added music and a, a title at the end kind of thing. But um, so a couple of people did that. Uh, There's a, a, a magician uh, in Houston who was a world-renowned magician, and he did uh, a, a, a wonderful uh, kind of riff on my book uh, and it's so fun because you know if people get that involved in what they've read or what they've heard about uh, it's just another one of those things you and I are talking about where something landed with somebody to the point where they were motivated to take some kind of action you know and th in this case to share their humor with me and um, a, 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 there's a guy who's a voiceover artist and he lives in uh, Oklahoma City. And he came up with an idea and contacted me to promote Devious Thinking. 
and it was a brilliant idea. Uh, and the promo was called uh, Devious Confessions. So he and another voiceover artist uh, who lives in Los Angeles recorded the commercial and sent it to me. And then my job was to find footage that fit what they had performed. And it's, I mean, what, what they did was amazing and the way it all came together was kind of hilarious. And I've, you know, what can I say? It's as much fun as writing the book itself when you get to, you know, kind of riff on the creativity of people like that who are top industry professionals uh, in their field and to to uh, uh, build on that and and kind of finish it visually was was um, a, a filmmaking challenge, but also it was my book and, and how fun for me, you know? I think it's terrific. I'm I'm really I, I loved your book, Devious. I thought it was great. Um oh, thank you. You're welcome. I wanna thank it's you just, for oh go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I just thank you so much. I'm sitting smiling, uh, hearing you say that because as a writer you know when somebody uh, doesn't hate what you did, it's it, <laughs> you know, it's very rewarding and you know, these things I don't I don't blow these out in, in four three or four months like like you know famous authors often do you know it takes me a couple of years to get one of these uh, done and so when you put that much time and energy and creativity and thinking into it uh, craft trying to learn the craft of doing this um, you know it's very rewarding to hear that especially from a fellow writer so thank you so much oh you're welcome it was great um, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to come on my show. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. As always, this is really enjoyable to just sit and kick back and, and talk about this stuff. I feel like we could do this for hours. And uh, uh, and uh, so have me back if, if anybody, unless people object. If they do, sorry, folks. <laughs> but if, if they don't object, then, uh, uh, you know, I'd love to come back sometime. Well, I'm the one who makes that choice, so you're definitely going to come back. <laughs> well, I, there could be a mutiny. There could be a a, a coup, you know, of your of your listeners. They could they could you know be marching with torches to on you know, the castle. So we have to be careful about that. Oh, right. Well, I don't think they will. I think they'll like you. I think they like you very much. Uh, anyway, thank you so thank much, Tom. I really thank you, everybody, for the thing. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.